With that, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? <clears throat> By the way, this is a great passage. Uh, you probably know this story, but there's so much to glean from this. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. I pray that you would open our hearts right now through your spirit. Help us to understand them and apply them to our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled, From Losers to Leaders. <laughs> I'm talking about the disciples, not you. Uh, from losers to leaders, I'm going to begin today uh, preaching a short series I've written for uh, on the subject of leadership. And so if you ever wonder what, what is required to be a leader, God's Word actually tells us. A small-town prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand in a trial. His first witness was a grandmotherly, elderly woman who had lived in the town her entire life. The prosecutor approached her and he asked, Mrs. Jones, do you, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. <laughs> she said, you lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big rising star and a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. So yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and asked, well, Mr. Uh, Ms. Williams, do you know the defense attorney? And she replied, well, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was youngster too. I used to babysit him for his parents. And he too has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, he's bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. <laughs> the man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. So yes, I know him too. <clears throat> At that point, the judge called the courtroom to silence and had both of the attorneys come up to approach the bench. And he said to them in a very quiet voice, if either of you ask if she knows me, you'll be jailed for contempt. <laughs> Well, many times people are not the leaders that we think they are. How many times have we been disappointed with the failings of those we choose as our leaders? Of course, part of the problem is we appoint or elect leaders by the world's standards instead of by God's standards. It begs the question, what is a leader? I think if we're going to do a series on leadership. That's the first question we should ask. What is a leader? What makes a leader? Today is Upward Sunday, so I want to challenge our kids in Upward Football and the rest of us to consider the question, what is a leader? Specifically, just what are the qualifications of leadership and what are the qualifications for Christian leadership? 
Parents, do you not want your children to grow up to be leaders? I've never had a parent say to me, Pastor, I want my kid to be a follower, that he just follows whatever anybody around him says to do. No, do you not want your children to be leaders? I have three children. I want to see them excel in leadership. Well, leadership and leaders don't happen arbitrarily. It's not an instinctual thing. It is a learned thing. We have to teach them how to be leaders. And so that's what I want to begin to do uh, today. As you know, Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 main followers, but he trained them to be leaders, and they became great leaders. And in this passage, with one exception, of course, and in this passage this morning, we see Jesus teach them to do just that, to be leaders. You see, there are key differences between leaders and everyone else. So today I want to give you three things you can all do to become leaders. Three simple things, very quickly, that you can all do to become leaders. Number one, if you want to be a leader, don't carry your baggage with you. If you want to be a leader, don't carry your baggage with you. And by the way, this, all of this comes right out of this passage. Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples and he's giving them instructions on what to do when they go out. And they, if, if, you're not, if you've not read this before, it sounds so strange. Of all the things he could have said to them, he said that? But that's exactly what he does. Number one, don't carry baggage with you. Mark chapter 6, verse 8 says, These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. And you see how practical that is? It sounds odd. You know, you would think just, just the opposite that he would say to them, pack well, you know, just in case. Keep a little extra money. Take an extra clunic, a tunic or two. You know, have some extra clothing with you in, in case you need to put on some clean clothes or things don't work out or you encounter bad weather. Be prepared. He doesn't say that. What does he say? The opposite. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no back, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Isn't that interesting? Here's what he's saying to them. And I think you and I understand this. Don't weight yourself down with things you don't need. Take the necessities, but trust God for the rest. For your food, for your tunic, for your money. God will take care of you. Don't, don't worry about those things. Don't weight yourself down with those things. Take the basics, take the necessities, trust God for the best. When I go for a walk or a hike, I like to take absolutely nothing with me. In fact, I'll take the change out of my pocket because I wanna keep it as light as possible if I'm gonna hike for a while. I won't take water, it drives Cherry crazy uh, that I don't take water with me and sooner or later I'm dehydrated so I drink hers. Now, you may be one of those people that are like that. You like to be light as a feather when you're out walking or hiking. Or you may be just the opposite. You may be the kind of person that you pack, you pack a backpack just to go to the mall. And you keep three days of water just, just in case some, something happens at the mall and you need emergency rations. Jesus says to them, in this case, he says, don't, don't do that. You, you trust me. But I think spiritually there's something to be learned here as well. To be a leader, pack light. 
That is, don't carry your baggage with you everywhere you go. And we all have baggage in our life. We carry it with us everywhere. But you will never be a leader if you carry around your baggage. We all have it. We have baggage. Injustices done to us, issues and hurt inflicted upon us, failures, disappointments, regrets, baggage. For many people, their baggage is so severe that it defines them. And as soon as their name comes up and you think about them, you immediately start thinking about their baggage because they are so intertwined with their baggage. People don't see them apart from their baggage and they can't see themselves apart from their baggage. I want you to know that God wants to free you from your baggage. He did not design you or your identity to be bogged down in baggage all of your life. But there it is. For those who have baggage, it spews out everywhere they go, in everything they say, everything they do, and everything they write, baggage. In the 29 years I've been a pastor, I've counseled with quite a few people over the years, but a few of those, and this is not anybody here, by the way, just a disclaimer, <clears throat> it's been a while, but a few of those that I've counseled with over the years were intoxicated when they came in for counseling. They were drunk. Again, not members of the church, but they were intoxicated. And what's interesting is, because I'm the pastor, they're sitting there trying to be distinguished, but I can tell that they're drunk. I can smell it on their breath, and they're slurring their words, and no matter what they say or how they say it, it, com it comes out of their mouth sounding like a drunk person. And certainly when police stop people, if you've ever known anyone that got stopped for being intoxicated, when the police stop them and they realize they see the lights flashing behind them and they slow down and they come to a stop and the police officer comes to their car and they know they've been drinking, they know they're drunk. They sit there and they want to act as sober as possible because they realize they're gonna be in trouble. So they try to walk the line, they try to maintain their composure, they try to sound sober, but they just can't because they're drunk. And so it comes out in everything they say, every movement that they make, it just oozes out of them. It's obvious they're drunk. Well, when we go through life with unresolved baggage, it's the same way. You can't have a conversation. You can't have a relationship. You can't get a job or go to school or do anything that your baggage does not pour out all over everything. You can't work in the kingdom with all, without all that baggage coming out. And you're limited on what you can do as a leader in God's kingdom because of all the baggage. So there's the challenge. Get rid of your baggage. Now you may ask the question, and it is an obvious question, how? You may be asking, Pastor, how can I get rid of my baggage? I'm going to give you three simple ways that you can get rid of your baggage. Not easy. These are not easy. In fact, getting rid of your baggage may be one of the most difficult things you ever do in your life. It's not easy, but it is simple. Number one, give it to God. Now, I think you knew I was going to say that. That's the obvious, and that's the biblical response to give it to God, 1 Peter 5, 7. Among so many other, other excuse me, verses that talk about it, <clears throat> says, cast all your anxiety on him 
because he cares for you. <clears throat> that is, if you're having problems with a relationship, pour it out to God. If you're having problems with a past relationship that you can't get over, pour it out to God. If somebody wronged you and you may have been wronged horribly in your life and you've been carrying that around, pour that out to God. God wants you to do that. He'd rather you pour it out on him than pour it out on everybody else. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Number two, <clears throat> seek counsel. Seek counsel. A professional Christian counselor, a pastor, or a trusted mentor. Let them help you walk through your issues. <clears throat> Sometimes you have a physical problem and you need to go to the doctor. If you have a toothache... You don't think, well, I'll just deal with it. I'll take care of it myself. You go to the dentist. Sometimes we physically have problems for which we need help. Well, sometimes spiritually and emotionally we have challenges for we need help. It's beyond our ability to deal with it ourselves. And God knows that. So find a counselor, someone to trust, someone who's godly, and listen to their counsel. Number three, <clears throat> And this may sound obvious as well. Excuse me just a second. Number three, let it go. You can pray all the prayers you want. You can get all the advice and go to all the counselors you want. But in the end, you have a choice and you must choose to let it go. You have to come to this point, and every counselor will tell you this, you have to come to this point in your life where you say, I refuse to let this problem, this trauma, this difficulty, this challenge, I refuse to let it define me. I refuse to let it block me anymore. I release it, and when you release it, stop talking about it, stop thinking about it, stop messing with it, stop letting it come up in conversations. Just move on in life. Release it to God. And again, that's hard to do. I get that. It is hard, but it is possible. Let it go. In our passage this morning, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is Mark chapter 6, verse 11. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So <laughs> Jesus says this, first of all, because he knows what's going to happen. He knows some of the towns they go to will embrace them, welcome them with open arms. He knows other towns won't have anything to do with them. They'll go to the town square. No one will greet them. No one will invite them into their home. No one will, they'll, they'll ostracize them. They will want nothing to do with them. Or they'll go in and they'll preach the gospel and people reject the gospel. They'll reject Jesus and they'll run them out of town. So Jesus says, if they won't have you or if they reject you, here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and leave town. Don't stay there and just keep pressuring them and pressuring them and pressuring them, thinking that you're going to get a different result. No, you got other places and other towns and other opportunities. Go ahead and leave. When you leave, shake the dust off of your feet. Now, what he means by that is you decide you're not responsible for what happens in that town anymore. You did your best. You shared the gospel with them. And that's, they didn't want it. That's on them. You're free of any responsibility now. Shake the dust off your feet and move on to the new town. Here's what would have happened had they not done that. 
they would have approached the next town after being rejected at one town, they would have gone to the next town, and as they see it in the distance, they're getting closer and closer and closer, the disciples, and you know the disciples well, they would have said to each other, two by two, they would have said, oh, well, that last town was no good. I bet this town's going to be the same. That last town treated us terribly. I bet this town won't treat us well either. We shouldn't even go there. And you can psych yourself out till you don't trust anybody or anything in life because of the trauma that's happened to you in the past. I know that some of you have gone through terrible marriages. Ladies, some of you have been physically abused in that marriage. And it's extraordinarily difficult for you ever to move on in your life and trust anybody again. But you've got to let it go. If you take your old issues with you to your new relationships... It will ruin the new relationship because that old relationship is there and no relationship is designed to be that way. Your new relationship has enough issues of its own, does it not? So if you have, if you have multiple children and you have difficulty with one children, you know as a parent, you don't take care out on the next kid and the next kid and the next kid because of what happened with this child. You have to take every opportunity in life, release the past, move forward. And so <clears throat> you got to let it go. Again, maybe the most difficult thing in your life you've ever done. So Jesus says, if people wrong you, it's on them. Don't take it with you. Because all of us have been wronged enough in our life that our baggage can define us. All of us have had injustice. All of us have had bad things happen. Let it go and move on. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, it says it this way. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let it go. Number two, focus. Just one word, focus. Leaders are people of great focus. And I'll give you the example in our passage today in Mark chapter 6, verse 10. says this, <clears throat> again, the instructions of Jesus. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, I found this verse to be most interesting. Of all the things he could have said to them, he says that? I'm sure the disciples are expecting his instructions to say, when you go to a town, say this, 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 and this. Here's your outline. Here's your application. Here's your beginning, and here's your ending. When you go to a town, do this, and this, and this. Do these 25 things. Instead, what does he say? He simply says, when you go into somebody's house, stay there till you leave that town. What does that have to do with anything? Why would it matter? Why would he care that they stay in the same house? Let's say they go to a town and a dozen town folk come to them and say, hey, come to our house, come to our house, come to our house. And they say, well, I tell you what, we'll stay 12 days. We'll stay at a different person's house every single day. Let's do that. And we can spread it around, get to know more people, share the gospel with more people. But Jesus says, no, when it comes to staying in somebody's home, I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay focused. I want you to go to one house. The whole time. Isn't that interesting that he says that? Well, Jesus never said anything arbitrarily. He wasn't just thinking up stuff to say for his disciples. He's very articulate and specific as to why he wants them to do that. Why just one house? I think Jesus is saying something like this. 
Focus your energy where you are, not where you aren't. He doesn't want them going into a house and thinking, boy, this house is kind of small. Maybe the next house will be bigger. <laughs> I can't wait till this night's over so I can go to the next house. It'll be really nice. That's the mayor. He doesn't want them to do that. He wants them to stay focused right where they are, not where they aren't. I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know what brought you to the place in your life where you are right now. Whether you're young and you're a student in school, or you're a young adult, you're in college, or you're married, you just got married, or you're dating somebody right now, or you've been married for 20 years and you've got multiple children, or you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent or a widower or a widower, wherever you are in life, God has something for you right now. Now, it may be different than what he'll have for you next year or last year, but right now, God has something for you. He knows where you are in life. Focus on where you are, not where you aren't. Otherwise, you'll spend your whole life just being frustrated. Perhaps you're thinking, if I were smarter or more educated or younger or older or more healthy or better looking or better sounding, or if I had the talent uh, of so-and-so, or if I had that talent over there, that is what our world is constantly telling you. And it's a lie. The world says, no matter where you are or who you are, focus on what you don't have and focus on who you aren't. That's what the world says constantly. If you want to be somebody else and you do, focus on that. If you want to be a different gender, focus on that. If you want to have a relationship with someone other than your spouse, focus on that. You deserve to be happy. And happiness is when you are focused on something other than where you are. When you are dissatisfied with what you have and you got to go get whatever makes you happy, go focus on that. No matter what job you have, don't be satisfied. Rather, focus on the job you don't have. But against that stands Christ who would say, focus your energy and time wherever God has placed you with whatever God has given you. I'm not saying things shouldn't change. Things will change in time. But right here, right now, this is where God has put you. Focus on that. <clears throat> if you are in upward sports and you were to say to your coach this week, Coach, you're in the huddle or you're on the sidelines. He's about to send you all out to start the game. And you go up to your coach and you say, Coach, I'm not the quarterback. I want to be the quarterback. And then another kid on your team says, Yeah, I want to be the quarterback too. And pretty soon all the kids on your team are going, Hey, I should get to be a quarterback. And so your coach says, All right, poof, you got it. All of you can be the quarterback. He gives a ball to every one of you. And out on the field you go. You all say hut at the same time. You all step back, ready to throw the, the ball, and you realize there's nobody to receive it because you're all quarterbacks. They need quarterbacks, but they need receivers. They need all the players. That's just how life works. And you may not be the CEO of your company. You may not be the valedictorian. You may not be the best-looking kid that, that's in your school or the most talented person at your workplace or most, the most gifted person at work or, or at church. I want you to know God knows exactly what you're capable of doing right here, right now, and he wants to use whatever you have. Think about what he used. 
some scruffy fishermen, some zealots, a tax collector. And he took these guys, none of whom were really qualified, and he used them. During the course of World War II, many people gained fame in one way or another. One example was Butch O'Hare. How many of you ever heard of Butch O'Hare? All right, there's the pilot. Yeah, there was a pilot in the first service. He raised his hand immediately. You've actually heard of him. You just don't know it yet. He was a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier in the Pacific during the war. One time, his entire squadron was assigned to fly a particular mission. And after he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He did not have enough fuel for the mission. <clears throat> and, and to get back to his ship. And so his flight leader told him to leave the formation and go back to the ship, which he did. But as he was, this is before radar and all that. Before he, as he was returning to the mothership, he saw a squadron of Japanese Zeros fighter planes heading toward the fleet to attack. And with all the fighter planes gone, the fleet was almost completely defenseless. There was just him and all of those enemy pilots. He was the only opportunity to distract or to divert them. And instead of running from that large fleet of fighter pilots, single-handedly, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes and he attacked them. The American fighter planes were rigged with cameras as they flew and as they fought. Pictures were taken so pilots could learn more about the terrain, enemy maneuvers, and that sort of thing. Butch dove at the enemy and shot until all of his ammunition was gone. Then he would dive and try to clip off a wing or a tail or anything that would make the enemy planes unfit to fly. Anything to keep them from reaching the American ships. He was the only thing protecting those ships. Finally, the Japanese squadron took off in another direction, and Butch O'Hare and his fighter, both badly shot up, limped back to the carrier. He told his story, but it wasn't until the film from the camera in his plane was developed that they realized the extent that he had gone to to protect his fleet. He was recognized as a hero and given one of the nation's highest military honors. As you may know, O'Hare... International Airport in Chicago was named after him. He could have thought to himself, man, I wish I was with the squadron. I just want to be with them. I'm useless. But he ended up saving no telling how many hundreds or thousands of lives. One, one guy, because of right where he was. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says it this way. Let us Fix our eyes on Jesus. That's focus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Stay focused on your shepherd. Let go of the past. Focus. And then lastly, celebrate your victories. Celebrate your victories. I'm not talking about gloating. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about in sports. But I do think that we should celebrate your victories. God gave us a wonderful week of revival. 
I believe that we'll see lasting effects from that revival, and I know that people's lives were, were changed. We should celebrate that. Don't ignore it. Don't gloss it over. Don't just move on and forget it. We should celebrate our victories. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, our passage for today says this. <clears throat> they went out and preached that, that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, if you remember at the first part of the story, when Jesus was about to give them instructions, it says that he gave them power to do what? Do you remember? He said, he, it says he gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. It didn't actually say anything about healing. So they go out and they share the gospel, the good news. And in the midst of doing that, they do in fact cast out demons, but they were, went further and were able to go further and people were actually healed. Now for a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, that's astonishing. For anybody, that's astonishing. And so you can, you can be sure that when they're on their way back, two by two, they all have testimonies. They are pumped. They are excited because they saw the spirit of the living God move through them and do things that they had only seen Jesus do. And it was time to celebrate. They were an unlikely group to do miracles or to become leaders. But Christ used them and he can use you. I remember seeing a job test once for the disciples. You may have read this. It, it, uh, it was a job test as though it was given from the secular world. It went something like this. To Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter shop, Nazareth, Galilee. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken the battery of tests and we have run them through our computers. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, educational, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would suggest that you continue your search for persons with experience and proven credibility. Simon Peter, they said, for example, is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has no leadership skills at all. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to inform you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus have radical leanings and registered high on the manic depressive scores. Only one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness who meets people well and has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places and is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. <laughs> we wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, the Jerusalem Management Consultants. Wow. Well, there's some truth to that. The disciples were an unlikely group. But it wasn't who they were. It's what God was willing to do with them. So don't you sit out there right now thinking, nah, I don't qualify. God's not interested in your qualifications. He's interested in your willingness to let him teach you and train you to become a leader in this world that desperately needs leadership. 
Today, Jesus wants to make you a leader. Doesn't care about your shortcomings, your failings, or your past. He's interested in your present and your future, and he's calling you. Pray with me. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to say thank you for your patience in our life and your grace in our life. We acknowledge before you right now that we all have unresolved baggage. We carry it with us everywhere like an albatross, a weight around our neck. People see us and hear us and identify us with our baggage because we spew it out everywhere we go like someone who's intoxicated, making it obvious Father, I pray right now that whatever has happened to us in our past, whether it's a trauma that was done to us or foolish mistakes that we made that just keep coming up over and over again, Satan wants us to rehearse it and wallow in it and get lost in it. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would release us from it that we would be able to take whatever there is in our life that does not glorify you and that is holding us back from leadership, that you would release it. In the name of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to stay focused where we are, where you placed us and what we're doing right now. We not fret on what happened in the past or worry about what's going to happen in the future. You place us right here, right now. And while we can't do everything, we can do some things for your glory. If you can use fishermen and zealots and tax collectors, you can use us. So Father, we ask and pray right now that you would help us to stay focused. What we're doing, where we are during this time, for your glory. Father, when you give us great things, when you perform miracles in our life, when you release us from our past and you equip us for the present, we ask and pray in those victories that we would celebrate them, not bypass them, because you have blessed us. You have given us so much. You've called us and redeemed us and forgiven us in Christ. You've given us eternal life in heaven through him. You've given us victory over death. You've given us real hope. And we should celebrate. But also, Father, you have won victories in our life. You have put people in our life, in our path, that have been a blessing to us. That have helped us and encouraged us. Family and friends. We should celebrate that. We sometimes do give good advice. We do sometimes encourage others. We do sometimes lift them up. We do sometimes have a positive effect in this dark world. Father, thank you. Thank you. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus that you would grant us victory this week, just as you did through the, through the, through the disciples. That you did miracles through them and you will do miracles through us. And we ask and pray for that in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Father, we will be ready to celebrate. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today? Is there baggage in your life you need to release today? Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's not your fault. 
but it's something that happened and it defines you. It just comes out all over the place in your conversations, in things you say and you write. It go, it's going through your mind right now. And you need to release that to God. Can I challenge you to do that? God has a better life for you than that. If not now, when? How long are you going to wallow in that and let it hinder you before you let God release you? Today, here, now, God wants to give you freedom. Would you be willing to do that? Maybe you've lost focus in your life. You've been going all over the place and you're not really focused on who you are and why God created you. And you want to come to God to say, Lord, would you help me with my focus? Where I am, what you have done in my life, where you placed me, would you show me how I can make an impact? How I can be a leader with my family, my friends, in my school, or my church, or this world. Make me a leader. If God is leading right now, as you pray, this invitation is for you. Maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray. Or maybe God is calling you to make a public decision today to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to accept Christ as my Savior. Or maybe you've done that, but you've never been baptized. And God calls you as a step of obedience to be baptized. And you want to come down and say, Pastor, I'm a believer in Christ, but I've never been baptized. I, I need to follow through. I want to be obedient to that. And we'll schedule the time for you to be baptized. Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and you want to make this your church home and make a difference here. Just come down and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. Or you just want to come and kneel and pray. If God is speaking to you, this is your opportunity. Would everyone stand? As everyone continues to pray, all heads bowed and all eyes closed, this is your opportunity right now as we pray, you come.